Ecclesiastes 7 and 8. Whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. No one can con- condemn with someone who is stronger. The more words, the less meaning. And how does this profit anyone? For who knows what a, what is good for for a person in life? During the few weeks and meaningless days, they pass through like a shadow. Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? A god. A good name is better than a fine perfume. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. It is better to go in a house of mourning than to go in a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living heart should take this the living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The last heart the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is a, is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools, like crackling, like the crackling of thorns under a pot. So laughter, so is the laughter of fools. This is too meaningless. Extraction turns a wise person into a fool. A bribe corrupts the heart. The end of Matt of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask ask such questions. Wisdom is like inheritance, is a good thing, and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter, but advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider go- what God has done. Who can straighten, straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today. Thank you for that reading, William, as well. Whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity has been, has been known. No one contend with someone who is stronger. So the words of Ecclesiastes begin for us today. Um, we've been walking this summer uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes. We started this series on wisdom literature last summer, where we walked through the book of Proverbs. And what we hear in the book of Ecclesiastes is this sort of challenge to the book of Proverbs, or, or this counter-testimony to the book of Proverbs. And, and what happens in the book of Proverbs is the world is rightly ordered. Things go as they seem to go. There are exceptions. I don't think Proverbs is naive about the frustrations of life, but it seems to, to double down on the work hard, go to college, do the right things, be an honest person, and life will predominantly work out well for you. <laughs> To be fair, the book of Proverbs does not say go to college, just in case um, 
uh, I'm saying is that it has a script within its pages that says uh, that this is how life will work out if you do these things and live in this ways. What the book of Ecclesiastes sort of proposes is uh, not so fast. Um, it's not always true. And more than that, and this is kind of um, the book of Ecclesiastes trump card in, in lots of ways is, but all die. Um, he'll continually come back to, even if you can gain, even if things can work out within some reason, that's fine. But in the end, all die. Um, and so it brings this challenge to this sort of notion of what does Proverbs mean. Um, before we get too far, that, that brings us to, to one of the words, and I think, I can't tell if this thing's out of water or not, um, is, is that notion that all die and that life um, exceeds our grasp. It, it comes from this word hevel, which is translated in various ways. Now it's got a strobe light. I'm not going to like that. Um, maybe it's out of water. Uh, well, now it's working. None's coming out the top. That, maybe I should have done it that way the whole time. Um, uh, that life is like smoke. It's like vapor. It's hard to grasp. It's hard to get a control on these things. And what, what I think is uh, we miss in the book of Proverbs, sometimes if we overheighten that theme, is it seems like we can achieve it. It seems like we can get it. And yet as we reach to grab it, it sometimes or often eludes our grasp. That's the first thing. The second thing, and I like to just recap this, is is Kohelet is what I call the author of Ecclesiastes, and it's what the author of Ecclesiastes calls himself. And so in the first section in verse, I think, 11, when he's talking, he says, I Kohelet in Hebrew, which we translate as teacher or as instructor or the, he who assembles or the congregant. Um, uh, he is this one who sort of is the teacher. And so as I say, Kohelet says or Kohelet this, know that I'm talking to the, the sage, the person of wisdom, who's written the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, so those are the, the sort of two things at the start. Um, but one of the things um, I wanted to think about this morning, I've been meaning to share this Martin Luther quote for a long time. This comes from Ellen Davis' commentary where she says, Martin Luther said we should read this noble little book every day because, precisely because it so firmly rejects sentimental religi religiosity. Um, that that what Luther saw in this book is this way of escaping the sentimental religious natures of the lives that we live. And, and for Luther, this meant several different things. One, I think, is um, equations so that things work out. For Luther, the only way that things work out is not in anything what we do, but what, Christ, what God does through Jesus Christ in rescuing us from our own sins and depressions. And so, as you're tempted to read some of the Bible, as Luther saw in his age, to say, here's how we live rightly, Luther would always be the one to say, like Kohelet, the only way we live rightly is living in and to and through Jesus Christ. Living rightly is, is perhaps for Luther, hevel. It's something that we try to grasp, but is always outside of our grasp. And so for Luther to say that, is he, is, is he to say is that, is that, um, we read this book to keep in mind that it's hard to grasp this faith, but it is God who comes to us in Jesus Christ. That's what makes the firmness of it. Uh, the, the Brené Brown, uh, the writer, Brené Brown, does anybody know her? She has this great, uh, it's in an interview where somebody was telling her about, she said, I started going to church, and um, I was talking to the pastor, and uh, she was like, I want this to make sense and be easier for me. And he said, that's not the way faith works. 
And he said, what he said to me is that faith is, is like a midwife who tells you it's supposed to hurt and talks you through the pain so that new life can come. And this is the section of Ecclesiastes that I think we're in today, is that, is that what Kohelet's going to reject for us today is the way we can um, pleasure or bring joy or laugh or, or numb ourselves through life. His, his, in that interview, she says, you know, uh, there's no epidural for living in life. We can make our own clouds. Last week, um, I don't want to go over the same quote about the umbrella, though, that, that we can make our own our shelters in these things, but they too get ripped open at times with unexpected news and unexpected life. And so what faith, she said, enables us is, is not enables us, but, but calls us to be present in the pain so that new life can be born. Uh, Flannery O'Connor has a great phrase where she talks about, uh, for many people at her time, they thought of faith as an electric blanket that kept you warm. She says, when in fact, it's more like the cross. It's more like that agony and suffering than it is like that thing that brings you comfort. Which is an odd way to bring a, a sermon. <laughs> Welcome to Defiance Church. There's no comfort here. Um, there's no uh, way to numb yourself through life. Um, but what we find is, is that we move um, in pondering these things to, I think, living fully awake, to living life in relationship to, to the material that is. We don't uh, intoxicate ourselves or, or medicate ourselves or pull ourselves away from the truth of life. We go into it so that we may be fully alive. And I think that's the challenge that Kohelet and Luther and others see in this book for us today, is it's this, this way in which we are pulled into living life fully, living life in its goodness. Now, what we have today in the, in the passage is, is a bit of a hinge. And so what Kohelet's been discussing for the first um, six chapters of the book has been sort of, uh, how is it that man, that humanity, is going to profit under the sun? How is it that the ledger is going to show some plus for them? And early on, he explores pleasure, he explores wisdom, he explores knowledge, he explores uh, building nice things, he explores having a family, he explores all these things, and he says none of these secure profit for us in any way. Um, and he says... In his, in his way, he says, you know, all of it sort of ends up leading to frustration. And that which doesn't lead to frustration, again, he pulls out his, his, his trump card, which is that we all die anyways. And so there is no securing in this life that future. That's, that's sort of his point. But, but we're going to go from in the second part. And in the first part, he often will, will end with these things that say, embrace and accept the gift of a good day. And... We talked about that life we conceive of today as a project. The number of things that I, I get bombarded with in email and other things, I'm like, here's a project of self-improvement to make yourself somebody else in X number of years, this, that, and the way. And what Kohelet, I think, does in, in for our age and different ages is he frees us from seeing ourselves that way, and he wants to invite us into, at the end of the day, um, if you can sit back and, and have a meal and enjoy um, a drink and look at the, the labor of your hands, not toil for profit, but the labor in which you've done, that is, that is where we can rest in God. That is where we find some goodness in this life. And so he calls us into those moments 
to sort of sit there. And I think for, for our age, it's a good one because we tend to think that this is my plan, this is where I'm going to be, this is who I'm going to process towards. I have these things. Um, you know, what's the famous 90-day diet? Whole foods, whole, the whole 30. So obviously it's not 90 days, it's 30. It's in the title, Matt. Uh, should have looked it up ahead of time. Whole 30. Um, you know, we have these ways in which we're always sort of progressing in these ways to achieve something. And what Kohelet says is, that's not promised to you. Take what is near to you and celebrate that. Look at, at what's closest to you and not just try to look out into these future plans in which we um, are continually robbing from, from the future to make the present meaningful rather than actually living in the present. Um, and so he has that way. But, but what's going to happen in the second half is, is it's going to be a bit of a change. Is he's going to look more than what is good. He's kind of proposed those as goods, but, but here he's going to ask more, okay, so what that is good? The first was what is profit? How do we end the ledger of life with like something to say this was better than that? And for him, that seems impossible. There is no this is better than that in that way. And so what he's going to do in the second half of the book is sort of move into um, what is good? How are we going to end up on the other side of this in goodness? And that's uh, a big challenge that we're going to go forward with. And so we have in s- the end of 6, which um, William read for us today, uh, uh, 10 and 12, the hinge. And then in 7, we have sort of four proverbs that sort of make up sayings about wisdom uh, and life that we'll move through. Um, and so that's sort of where we are now. Um, one of the things I wanted to just go back to briefly from last week is is this line, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Uh, for me, has become a nice entryway into the whole book. And I think, as I look back at my life, how often this sentiment comes to my life or, or is in the background is, I think, um, good news uh, to hear this, that, that God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. I think that that for me at least, is if I had to center the book in some way, in a way that brings accessible to me to the hard teachings of Kohelet, it would be along the lines of that, that we are here on earth and we want to so strive to see things from heaven. But that is the place where God resides and not for us to be. And so we are to live in a way to let our words be few. Um, And that goes back to sort of his solution in the first half. Uh, Take in the day. Enjoy what's nearest to you. Say your blessings. Um, uh, And so this brings us to to sort of the end, this hinge uh, point that's going to turn us to the next session. Whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. No one contend with someone who is stronger, which is similar to that, that verse I just shared, you know, is is whatever exists is already in God. And what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with the one who is stronger. This is a reference to God. And so much, I think, in our lives and in our challenges is an attempt to contend with the one who is stronger. Um, My mind um, 
really connected a lot of dots this week through various different resources. So, um, but this is one that I had looked up and that I didn't want to do, and now I'm doing it anyways, I guess. Is, is, um, it, has anybody read Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis? It's one of his least read works, but it was one of his favorite. And it's the story of, of um, two sisters in, in Greek mythology and sort of, but what happens in the book is that the woman is writing, she finds out that, the, the, that what happened between her and her sisters is being told throughout the land as a story of how she was wrong. And so she says, I'm going to set out to write my case towards the gods to prove I was right. And that's how the first book ends. The second half begins with her finally getting her audience with the gods. And what happens there is she reads her case, and what she reads is actually an indictment of her, and she reads it over and over and over again until it says to stop. She is one who has tried to contend with one who's stronger than her. And what she realizes, the answer of my case against the gods was answered by the cases against myself. And the book ends um, with this line where she says, the whole time I've been sort of um, questing after you, blaming you, thinking this way, and if I had known differently, I might have, and then the page... (laughs) Let's off, which is to say praised or loved you, whatever you want to fill into that. But, but she has this long case against everything that's gone wrong. She is one who wants to contend with one stronger than her. But what's interesting in this story, at least, is that the one doesn't even contend with her. She speaks her own guilt as she's processed it out. She is one who's trying to, to say that this is the way it should have been, and it's, un, it's not possible to do. Um, she thought there was no answer, but she says the answer um, was always there in some ways. Um, that's, that's, I think, an interesting way of thinking about how do we contend with one, or a lot of this passage. But because it goes right next, yeah, to the next one. The more words, the less meaning. And how does that profit anyone for who knows what good is a uh, what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone here he he brings us to that point of that there is one who is stronger than us and we try to explain we try to use words we try to win those arguments we try to advance in that ways and what happens is is that our words fall flat in these situations and actually our words just produce more words our words just bring about more and more meaninglessness as we sort of talk these things out and and then it becomes how do we bring good during these few and meaningless days in which we pass on earth who can tell them what will happen uh, under the sun after they are gone colette brings the perspective back to us in our lives the psalm we read this morning goes considers the same thing too is that god has named these things the psalm had said he determines the number of stars and calls them each by name naming in the bible too we've talked about this in relationship to other texts is to know the thing it's to possess the thing it's to do this and so that god has named everything is to say that 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 it's all contained within god and so when adam names the animals he's doing exactly what god did in a mini god sort of way this is one way perhaps you can think about adam sort of carrying on the image of god is that as god has named day and night sun and stars uh, sea and land that adam is naming the animals and doing his mini god thing but he does that under the guise of that there is a greater god 
There's one whom he can't argue with. And in, and in that moment in the story, as many of us are aware, things are still existing in harmony. It's what happens after that when, when Adam tend, contends to say, I'll be the God, I will be like God, that things fall apart. So the naming thus on our side, I think, ends up broken, too. Adam is capable of naming because he lives in union and walks with God. And what happens in that fracturing is our inability to name. And yet still, Kohelet would say, we try to name what is good and what is right under the sun. We try to explain. We try to have words. We try to make sure it all evens out. Um, sorry, I had so much in my mind this week that live editing on the fly. Uh, this is the quote on the back of the bulletin, though. I do want to get to this. Is, is Life is beyond the realm of figures and idea. Life lacks at every attempt to calculate it, for life comes from God himself, who cannot be calculated in his plans, who is free to do whatever he pleases. Life is dark and beyond the grasp of human understanding. So are man's ways and fates. Who understands them? Who interprets them? This is Bonhoeffer preaching on this passage as well um, before he went to jail. But, but sort of this, that life is the realm of figures and idea. Life laughs at every attempt to calculate it. I'm a big baseball fan. There's this uh, stat called uh, War, which is a great name for baseball stat, I guess. It's titled Wins Above Replacement. And in theory, what they've done is calculated what a replacement level player, which is like they name the guy who would be a replacement level player sometimes, which I think is mean. So like the standard player you could sign that's just basic. Um, and then they ask, how much more does this person contribute, wins above, than the replacement level player? I wonder how long before we can download something that does this for our lives. And how bad and terrible that is. I mean, the baseball stat is what it is, but, but I do think that so many of us would, would say, how do we live wins above replacement level? Somebody else was living my life, where would they finish? And how do I finish above them? Bonhoeffer's point is laughs at every attempt to calculate it. Laughs at every attempt to add it all up and to give it the, the meaning that it, that it is added into. Um, the next uh, first proverb, a good name is better than fine perfume, the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of pleasure. This is this first teaching here. And one of the things that he quickly goes after here, Kohelet, is this medication way. This is what I started with, is this way of sort of um, making ourselves go through life in just joy and happiness with no awareness of anything else. And, and for many of us, this might be the goal of life. And yet, Kohelet says this is just numbing yourself so that you don't actually live life, that you're not actually driven into life, but you're pulled away from it. And this is a hard teaching about death. This is not an easy thing, that, that it's better to be at the funeral than the wedding is a, is a 
tough teaching. Now, I had, had the pleasure of doing uh, Haley and Jeremy's premarital counseling. I said, you know, I don't really like weddings, but I do like marriages. Um, and that's, that, I think, is a, a, what Kohelet would capture as well, is that better to live in the uh, joy, but probably also suffering, <laughs> and agony, and continued negotiation, and frustration that is marriage, than it is to only see the wedding. Every couple would be so happy. Um, uh, and that would be uh, an heir to conceiving life. How do you confront the reality of what that is? You live into marriage, not into the wedding. Um, uh, weddings are such that we're different people on the other side of it. That's a, somebody, people say this, I, I feel like I married somebody else than who I dated. And it's like, by virtue of becoming a married person, they are a different person the day of, the day after. That commitment actually changes you. It's a, a performative action that then brings that about. Anyways, better to be at the funeral. Um, uh, Funerals, I think, are very important marks for the church. It's one of those things that I wish people would attend to the same way they attend to weddings if they get an invitation. Funerals are deep um, places of meaning. They provide a good reflection for our life. They help us think through things. Funerals are very, very important. Even there are um, funeral home directors will tell people that, you know, you can pay for the funeral, which is expensive, or you can pay for therapy later. Um, that there's this idea in which that the public rights of mourning, which have been so entrenched in humanity, to try and live without them is trying to like forget something we've been doing for longer than we've been writing our stories down. If you find in ancient societies, there are burial sites and there are um, artifacts of mournings around them. Funerals are perhaps older than weddings, is perhaps what I'm saying. And it's right for us to listen to them. Now, the early church um, came up with this concept of memento more. Remember that you have to die. Uh, this is why you see skulls often in pictures um, uh, of monks in monasteries back then. If you look at old art, um, that you'll see skulls. And this is this is the idea that if you keep death before you, then you can remember what how to live life which is a bit different. We, we cast death off to the sidelines. I mean, death today primarily takes place in areas we don't see and homes that are abandoned to the side and we don't see death. We try to live without death hanging over us and so we forget that truth. We live in the house of joy rather than the house of mourning. But the early church, um, and it was existed in Stoic philosophy, interestingly enough, but it's more named in this church period um, that we keep death before us. There's a story of Eastern monasteries where they keep the skulls of old monks in a room so that you can sort of go and be reminded of your death. But my favorite story about it is there's a monastery, I think it's in the United States, um, where uh, between where you eat and between where you pray, which is predominantly what a monk does every day, there is the graveyard. And what they do is they dig up, um, they dig the grave for the next monk who's going to die when the previous monk died. And so in between prayer and in between eating, you walk by an open grave every day, asking yourself, is that one deep enough for me? Um, or maybe I don't want to be in that one. But what I think what they named correctly was this idea of keeping death before us, going to funerals. You'll see this powerfully in, in the short 
uh, novella. I think they call it a short story, but it's Tolstoy, so it's still like 150 pages long. Um, uh, uh, the death of Ivan Illich. Um, that until he can sort of accept death, he can then begin to, to move into the bliss that accompanies it. Uh, he too is one who thinks, everybody's been so lucky to have me, and here I am dying. And on his deathbed, he realizes, maybe that didn't calculate out the way that I thought it did. Um, this is, I think, if you wanted a devotional practice for today, um, welcome to Defiance Church again. Remember that you will die. Um, the next proverb, it is better to heed the rebuke of the wise than to listen to the song of fools. Listening, listen, like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so as to laughter fools, this too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Um, corrupts the, yeah, corrupts the heart. Uh, here, Kohelet's going back to the, the wise have something to offer us. Um, fools are like the crackling of thorns. Uh, this is something I love to do when I'm at a campfire. I should say when I was like 14, but I still love it, is to get like the, the small um, weeds around the fire and then burn them. And what happens is they crack and burn very fast, but they put off no heat. They're fun to burn, but if you wanted to start a fire with them, you would never get anywhere because there's no heat within them. This is sort of what he's saying about fools is, is they'll crackle like thorns. There's no heat within them. There's no help for you in your life. Um, and then he, he turns to the this, this second part, which is that wisdom is not secured in and of itself. People are still people, which I think is a hard teaching for me, and I think it's a hard teaching for a lot of people, is that we assume... Um, rock-like stature, perhaps in too many people because they appear to be wise. And what Kohelet is saying is to assume that somebody is not, uh, does not fall prey to extortion or bribe or corruption in this way is short-sighted. Um, uh, we, I think, hope that people can live in fidelity and be true and live out these things. Um, but Kohelet, again, is going to try and poke uh, a hole in that balloon and say... Um, it's dangerous to live too much in that. This brings us to the fourth teaching. Uh, yeah, um, the end of the matter. Sorry. This is the third. The end of the matter is, is better than the beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not quickly be provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why... Do not say, why were these days better than, than, why were the old days better than these? For it is why, not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But it, the advantage of knowledge is this, wisdom preserves those who have it. Um, so this teaching uh, is, is about... Um, the last part we'll tackle first. First is that wisdom does have some value, as he undercut it in the previous section. It does have some value, and he wants to say is it's perhaps like money. Um, it does provide some shelter. It does provide some good. Um, and it has one advantage of that it preserves a little bit more than money does. But, but it, he's, it's weird that he takes wisdom and puts it into that frame, right? That the wisdom can be accumulated and sort of be spent and used and this, that, and the other. But, but that seems to be what he is saying is that it, it has its benefits, such as shelter, but it's not, not the end-all, be-all. Um, uh, and it can preserve those who have it a little bit more than money can. Um, 
And so he has that. Uh, do not say why were the old days better than these, for that is not a wise question to ask. I just think so many of us are so guilty. <laughs> uh, if you want to be convicted, that I'm sure many of us have said this at different times. And what's odd is that so many people who I think of as wise in my relations that are older say this exact thing, which should make me cause me to rethink. I should come back with Kohelet and be like, I think you're wise. Can you stop saying that? Um, <laughs> Uh, because it is not wise to say that the old days were better than these. And this is part of Kohelet's thing is, is there's nothing new. It all comes back around in this, that, and the other. Is that, is that to say that the, and we don't have access to those days either. That's part of his, his sort of conclusion. The end of the matter is better than the beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. This call into patience in life... Um, Let's see, I had three quotes and I didn't use any of them. This is something that, though, I, I think about often. Does, it's called an old Chinese proverb on the internet. I doubt it is. I don't know why we always just assume ancient origin for these things. But this is a story that reminds me of Kohelet that I always hated. An old farmer lived near the border of the country and had one horse, but ran away one day. All the neighbors came to console him. They knew how much he relied on the horse for the heavy works in the farm, and he would be in trouble without the horse. But the old man replied, well, we can never tell if, it, if this isn't for the better. One month later, the horse returned to the farm, along with another mare that had followed the horse all the way home. All the neighbors came to congratulate him with the new horse, and the old man was able to get a lot more work done. But the old man replied, we can never tell if this isn't for the worse. The old farmer had a son who loved horse riding and decided to take the new horse for rides in the fields. In one of his rides, he lost his balance and fell off the horse. He broke his leg and couldn't walk for a long time. This obviously was a bad thing, and the neighbors came to console the old man again. But still the old man replied in the same manner, well, we can never know if this won't turn out for the better. A few months later, war broke out near the border where the old farmer was staying. The government issued a decree for the conscription of all young men in the region. All the young adults were drafted in the army except for the son of the old farmer because of his broken leg. So the farmer and his son stayed alive and were saved from the ravages of war. This is not, uh, I, I hated that story when I heard it because it, it provides this limited frame so much that we can never actually rejoice. I think part of maybe perhaps is, is when the farmer has something good that happens, he doesn't seem in the parable like Kohelet, who's able to say, let me enjoy this gift, and I don't know what tomorrow brings, right? But I think there's something very much of Ecclesiastes in that story. Patience, thinking how it'll all add up, all this is not really for us to say. Now, one of the other things I dislike about the story is it all works out, <laughs> which I hate happy stories is the moral of that story, um, but that, that that's this sort of way of we need patience and perspective to be able to live this life fully. And so we think we can add it all up and suggest it all works out in this way, but we need to live into what um, the mystery of it. I think that this goes back to Bonhoeffer's insight. We try to add it all up ourselves. Um, the last observation is this, and I think the opening line is so important. Consider what God has done. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? This is a teaching from earlier, but, but God more is, 
in this time, he says that, that short saying, who is straight and what he has made crooked, it's more clear that God has made these things crooked. Uh, this is meant to be lighthearted, but I, that song, God Bless the Broken Road That Led Me to You, which I hate too, um, it's kind of funny because that's kind of an instance of this, right? Like, is who can straighten that broken road other than, like, time and God's will in that? Um, if you think about it in a non-sentimental way, it's kind of what he's saying. Uh, what times are good, what, when times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. When times are good, be happy, but when they are bad, consider this. God has made both of them. What Brian read for us in the worship set is that God sets the sun and rain um, both on the righteous and the wicked. Bad days and good days come to us all. And, and what I think is interesting as a, as a cross text, that's put in the love your enemy passage. As if we can know in the final analysis who would be enemy and friend? Um, I think that would be Kohelet's spin on Jesus, or Jesus' spin on Kohelet's teaching there, which is patience is better. Don't think you know that your enemy would always be your enemy or your friend, or your, always your friend. But the rain that God has provided falls both on the righteous and the wicked, the sun as well. So we be like our Father in heaven. Um, that God calls us into these days both good and bad. Um, and God has made both of them. The task of living life on, uh, on um, uh, numbed, awake, as Kohelet is calling us to do, calls us to live into the good and the bad days, and not to think that we can discern the future from there. Because we are called to consider what God has done. I think we'll end there for today. Um, I'm sorry, just collecting if that's the best spot to end. Yeah, I think that is. Um, now, this is the final words that frame the book that we've ended every sermon with. Now, the teacher was wise, that is Kohelet. Now, the teacher was wise, but also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched just to find the right words, and what he wrote about was upright and true. These words, though, are like goads. That's the, the thing that shepherds use, the hook. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of adding anything to them. Of the making of many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including everything hidden, whether it is evil or good. Let us pray. God, you have called us to be a people instructed by Kohelet. This means that we can be instructed at the funeral to ponder our life and our future, to bring that into perspective. 
to be a people of patience in a world that reacts quickly, to be a people of your peace. God, we ask that these words may for us be like the goads in which they are intended to be, like firmly embedded nails. But when all is said and done, that we would hear the good news, that we are invited to know you through fear in this case and to follow your instructions for life. From the final analysis, what is good and bad will be revealed through you in your judgment. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.